The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. We'll open your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. As you're turning there, let me give you a little orientation about where we are in Paul's argument in the book of Romans, because that will serve us in helping us understand why we have to wade through this section of theology. This is some of the theological sections in theology books that frankly has a lot of dust on it, that isn't given much attention, but is so critical to understand God in his giving of his son in the gospel, and the why of that, why for the Gentiles, why for the Jews. Paul's building an argument in the first three chapters, and he's building an argument that basically shows the blackness of sin so that he can announce the glorious light of the gospel. He begins talking about justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone in chapter 3, verse 21. But in Romans 1.18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, he shows how condemned every man in the world is. He shows the need for the gospel. He begins in chapter 1 by, by showing us that the Gentiles have turned their back on God and need the gospel. And we're in a section right now in the middle of chapter 2 where he's showing self-righteous Jews who are alive at the time of um, Paul's writing and self-righteous Jews even today who glory in their being special to God and thinking they have an exemption from God's judgment if they too are serving unrighteousness. Now, I've had a couple of discussions with folks who said, you know, this section of Romans is, is really interesting. It's hard to find application for me. Well, I understand that, but I think you'll find specific application for all of us today in looking at Paul's condemnation of the self-righteousness of some of the Jews who had rejected Christ and run back to the law, run back to the Torah. Let's pick it up in verse 11, Romans chapter 2, verse 11. Paul says, for there is no partiality with God. No favoritism is another way to translate that word. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts, thoughts alternatively, alternately accusing them or else defending them. On the day, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. How would you finish this statement? The most dangerous theological error is, and you fill in the blank. How would you answer that question? If I gave you some time to think about it, if I gave you an assignment to go home and write a one-page essay on that, what would you say? The most dangerous theological error is blank. Well, you might be tempted to name a contemporary uh, theology, theological error like openness theology or charismatic mysticism. You might be tempted to say pragmatism. And you would be good, right in saying that those are pivotal and critical theological errors to understand and to confront and to correct. Or you may be tempted to name an ancient theological error like 
Arianism or Pelagianism. Those feed into one another saying that man has the sovereign power to choose his destiny and God's sovereignty is put on the sidelines. But the text before us today lays out, outlines, explains a far more personal, a more subtle, and even a more eternally threatening danger into which not just the Jews were tempted to fall, but I think all of us have daily, hourly temptations to fall into ourselves. The greatest theological danger is, and I think this text helps us to fill in the blank, thinking that God is like us. Thinking God is like us. Turn back for a minute over to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. It's an important psalm in which the writer is confronting the the readers on this very issue, and the climax of the psalm really builds throughout the entire uh, uh, song that he writes. Psalm 50 is right before Psalm 51. I went to seminary to know that. Psalm 50 is right before 51. Everyone knows Psalm 51, that great confession of David uh, regarding his sin of Bathsheba. But look back at Psalm 50 for a moment. The mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken and summoned the earth from rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him, and it is very temptuous around him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens declare his righteousness. For God himself is judge. If there's ever an underlinable statement in the Bible, that's it. God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house nor male goats out of your folds for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Or uh, offer to God, he says, a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the most high God. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silence. Here it is. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you. State the case in order before your eyes. Now consider this. You who forget God. Or I will tear you into pieces and there will be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who offers his way aright, 
I shall show the salvation of God. I'm against you, Israel. And the reason is you misinterpreted me. You thought I was just like you. You thought that your intuitions are my intuitions, that your instincts are my instincts. Why? Verse 22 tells us, because you forgot God. Why did they forget God? Because they began to define God and his ways and his standards according to their own gut feeling, not according to Scripture, not according to the Torah, not according to God's revelation. Well, here in Romans 1 and 2, Paul is making the case that all are guilty before God. He's pressing the point that God is not partial. He doesn't show favorites. And he applies his holiness and he applies his justice without personal favoritism. The problem is, the Gentiles actually thought, well, God will give us a pass because we didn't know. And the Jews thought God will give us a pass because he gave us the law. What does that come to? It comes to all of us thinking that God is somehow like us. Oh, we love giving second chances. And I want to be careful here. God, God is not a second chance giver. He's a 10 million chance giver. We're all alive, aren't we? But we all think, well, in the last day, God will say, oh, you didn't love Jesus, you didn't give Jesus, but uh, you were a good guy, and your, your good weighed the seesaw down on the good side rather than the bad side, so come on in, let's, let's hug and make it all right for eternity. We think that God is like us. We show favoritism, and we think God does, and he doesn't. We show partiality, and we think God might, and he won't. We demonstrate unfairness. We are lenient. This chapter says God isn't. In chapter 1, he shows the wickedness of the Gentiles who've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They've worshipped the creatures and the creation rather than the creator. But the crucial thread to see throughout these first three chapters of Paul's argument is to show that the Jews are also guilty, not just Gentiles. Every man is guilty. And specifically here, he wants to show the Jews that mere possession of the law, possession of God's word, understanding God's revelation does not earn God's favor. It cannot provide salvation, and it constitutes no advantage over the Gentiles. This would have been a fingernails on the chalkboard screeching halt to a Jewish mind. When Paul says, your mere possession of the law doesn't get you any favors with God, they would have said, time out, hold on, that's not right. In fact, the purpose for Paul's mentioning the Gentiles in this passage is simply to make the point to the Jews that they too are like the Gentiles in being under the condemnation of God if they are without the Savior. Now, Paul's point in chapter 2 is that God judges all breakers of his law no matter who they are. If you want a theological pillar to fall back on and to take away, God judges everyone. God is the final judge. No one gets a pass. No one gets lenience. No one gets a favor. This is not that man who knows a police officer and gets a ticket and talks to him and he gets waved of that. There is none of that with God. The only advocate we have in heaven is Jesus. And the only way that he gives us a pass is to not give us a pass. It's to take the full and furious wrath of God that we deserve and absorb it in himself. He gave us no pass. He absorbed what we deserved. 
Now remember, since chapter 1, verse 18, Paul's been making the case that all men are unrighteous in need of the gospel. And in chapter 2, he drives home the point of God's impartiality to the Jews who would have been reading this. In fact, if you go uh, back through church history, uh, the large part of the Roman church was, lar- uh, was probably Jewish, predominantly Jewish. And they felt superior to the Gentiles, looked down on the Gentiles. Why? Because they had the law. Their thought was that since they had received the law of God, the Old Testament scriptures, that they had exclusive and even secret ways to God. They were receivers of God's grace. So here in this section, Paul's argument is critical. We have to press through this. He presses home the sobering reality that performance is what matters to God. What we do is a louder statement than what we say. This is a treatise, if you will, on lordship salvation. This is a treatise on being a doer of God's law, not merely a hearer. The Gentiles have the moral standards of God written on their heart, and the Jews have the law of God. But that mere knowledge is not salvific. That mere knowledge is not enough to get anyone to heaven. So what is? Where does it land with us? Well, let's dive into this. As we study this together, I want us to look at three implications of God's impartiality. This is an extension of what he began back in the first of the chapter. Three implications of God's impartiality. Now, we're going to pick it up in verse 12, but we'll start in verse 11. The first implication of God's impartiality is this. There are no exemptions from God's impartial judgment. There are no exemptions from God's impartial judgment. Verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. That's the conclusion of verses 1 through 10. It's the introduction of verses 12 and following. There, are, there is no partiality, no favoritism with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. That's Gentiles. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That's Jews. Deuteronomy 10, 17, so clear. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, listen, who does not show partiality nor take bribes. Tells us about God's disposition. Now, Moses used that, and Paul picks that up to show us that the inclination of the human heart, certainly the inclination of the Jewish mind at this time, was to think, well, God will will wink at us. He'll elbow us and say, it's okay for you. I'm a wrathful, almighty, judging deity, but you guys are underneath my kind favor. Hey, some were. Up until Christ, some were because they were doers of the law, as we'll see in a moment, and not merely hearers. But those who thought, because I'm Jewish, because I've been circumcised, which he'll get into in the next two chapters, because I've, I've been a part of God's covenantal people, that's enough It's what we say over and over. They were trying to live on the fact, this mistruth that God has grandchildren. God has never had any grandchildren, only children. You can't get to God because of your father, your mother, your fathers, your forefathers. It's all because of a relationship with him personally based on his son. All will be judged in this verse according to their more or less limitations and exposure to the knowledge of God. God will hold, as we'll see in a minute, God will hold the Gentiles accountable for what they know. And they know more than you might think. 
But God will hold the Jews especially accountable because they were the privileged ones who had God's revelation. And God still looks at the same principles for those who've sat under the preaching and teaching of God's word and have been privileged to hear God's truth and still not responded. You look at these, um, in, these in this verse in, in chapter uh, 2, there's two words, uh, perish and judge. The, th- those work as synonyms. They work together. Those who have sinned without the, God, the, the law will also perish. They'll be judged by the law. Those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Perishing has the idea of facing God and being found wanting and being judged for all eternity in hell because of the misstep. What is that misstep? We'll find out in the last verse today. Remember Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for a man wants to die, then comes the what? The judgment. Remember from chapter 1, that natural revelation, the idea that there's an order in the universe, the amazing natural creation of God is enough to condemn a man because it speaks of the author of creation, it speaks of a creator, but it's not enough to save a man. And remember, too, that Jesus adds this about judging. He says, we all know that the Gentiles should look at the creation and find the creator. They don't. In fact, they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship that which is created rather than the one who has created. But the Jews also who held the law, who held the revelation of God, should have gone beyond just the possession into a profession that leads to application and so many hadn't. And they became judges of the Gentiles, looking down their noses and saying, we are the favored ones of God. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 2? For the way in which you judge, you will be judged. Wow. The way in which you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Be careful. Go on. James chapter 2, verse 13. This is so penetrating, both on a practical level in our relationships and an eternal level with which we look at others and they're standing before God. James says, chapter 2, verse 13, for judgment will be merciless to those who show no mercy, because mercy triumphs over judgment. For those who've been given the grace of God, we should freely give the grace of God. For those who've been forgiven of sin, we should let love cover a multitude of sins rather than running around as God's special police force correcting everything on the earth. Can you imagine if, our, if, if we felt like God, God wants us to correct every wrong that we see? Well, first of all, you would never leave the mirror in the morning, Okay. You'd never get anything done. Second, what, what would we be doing all of, our, all of our life, especially just with believers? We'd be the permanent correctors. The point here in verse 12, Paul is saying, look, some have the law, some don't have the law, but God is the judge nonetheless. God will afford and accord judgment based on what you know in terms of punishment, but never graded on a scale in terms of salvation. That'll make more sense in a moment. There's a second implication of God's impartiality, and as in verses 13 to 15, there are no exemptions from God's validating assessment. So how is God going to look at people and assess whether they truly are believers, whether they're going to be found in heaven or not? What's the test? 
verse 13 begins to tell us. And we can understand verse 13 by saying this. Possession of the truth is insufficient for salvation. Just simply having the truth is not sufficient for salvation. Verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just. Wow, Paul is going to be talking about just and justification for the next three chapters. It will be glorious. It's not those who are hearers of the Torah, God's instruction, God's law, God's revelation, who are just before God, but who is just then, Paul? He answers it. The doers of the law that will be justified. Now, this passage has caused no small concern and killed a lot of trees in commentators trying to figure out what it says and doesn't say. Is this talking about works salvation? Absolutely not. Just read the next chapter. Just read the rest of the book. He's not saying that if you work hard, God will notice and give you an A and you'll get to heaven. It's just the opposite. He's saying if you're truly saved, if you're really a possessor of God's truth and God's revelation, if you understand the truth of his son, that will work itself out, Mr. Jew, in this passage, in application. You'll be a doer of the law, not merely a hearer of the law. Jews understood their national and salvific identity as defined by certain Jewish uh, peculiarities, like the temple. They saw their identity wrapped up in the temple, or, or the law, the Torah, that they had the, the revelation of God, or the circumcision, the sign of the covenant, or dietary laws, or purification laws, feasts and festivals, and even their religious calendar. That's how they identified themselves as special amongst themselves and favored by God. Paul, however, shatters the notion that mere possession of the truth is God-pleasing. And as we're going to continue to say here at MRBC, there's a massive difference between appreciating the truth and applying the truth. Appreciation isn't application. These Jews said, we have the law, we're good enough. God gave us law, he didn't give it to the Gentiles. We have God's word, therefore we're... Special. We hear God's truth preached every week in the Torah. We hear the synagogue sermons that are explaining God's revelation week in and week out. We are God's mighty ones because we have and we hear God's word. And Paul says, actually, it's not enough to hear. It's not enough to hear. Appreciation and possession is not the same as application. Remember what James told the Christians? James 1.22, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers, now listen to this, who delude themselves, who lie to themselves. What's the lie? The lie is I understand that this is special, therefore I am special. Go back to that illustration that so many theologians have used. Your mom comes in and tells you, I need, you to, I need you to clean the bathroom. You say, okay, mom told me to clean the bathroom. Wow, what a great command. I'm going to diagram it. I'm going to cross-stitch that, clean the bathroom. I'm going to put it on my wall. I love that truth so much. What a great command. Isn't it a great command? You can put it in, cross-stitch it and put it in the bathroom. And the sink is filthy, but you, you love that truth. What's the point? Clean the bathroom. Appreciation is not application. 
He was hammering the Jews on being hearers of the law and not doers. Do we have to hammer on the Jews alone regarding this principle? Hearing the law without heeding the law, without understanding and applying its message, without worshiping the one who gave it, actually can turn against the human soul. It can actually harden the heart. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. 2 Corinthians 3.14, Paul says, but their minds, speaking of the Jews, their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. In other words, they heard, they heard, they heard, they loved, they appreciated, they spoke, they sang, but they didn't apply, and that caused their heart to be hard. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I think of just people in our context. Let's, let's take a step away from the Jews in this context and look at our own world. And that principle is still in effect. James said it, you gotta be doers and not hearers alone. I have a pastoral fear at people who don't love and cherish Jesus Christ, continuing to hear and hear and hear and be exposed to truth. And I just tell you, with all love and with all begging remorse of your condition, you are reaping and heaping greater condemnation because you have more that you're going to be accountable for. You gotta be careful. It's easy to say, well, now I'll just stop coming to church. Well, how about repent? How about change? So I can't change myself. You're right, but God can. And He says, Seek me and you'll find me. Call upon me and I'll answer. So just come to Him. Read Isaiah 55. Romans 2:29. He is a Jew. Who is one inwardly, we'll get here in a few weeks, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Paul is saying, listen, mere possession of the truth will not make you saved. You have to do something with it. You have to apply it. It has to make its way into your life. It has to drive off this parking lot in your car. This wasn't just applicable to the Jews. This is for us as well. No exemptions from God's validating assessment. He's going to check and see if we're doers, not merely hearers. But he also gives another dimension of this in verses 14 and 15. Occasional obedience is insufficient for salvation. Possessing the truth won't make it, and occasional obedience won't make it. Now he turns to the Gentiles, verse 14. He says, telling the Jews, for when the Gentiles who don't have the law, they've never been given the Torah, they don't come to synagogue, do instinctively the things of the law, these people, not having the law, are a law to themselves. What's he saying there? He's saying, you've got to get, get this. The law is doing what's right. God has given us a conscience, in verse 15, that informs us of what's right and wrong. To disobey and disregard and go against that leads you away from the gospel and truth not toward it. Verse 15, in that they show the work of the law. Where is it? Where's the law? Do they have a copy of the Torah, a copy of God's word? No. It's written in their hearts. Where? Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts. This is really remarkable. Alternately accusing or else defending them. They know when they do something right. 
And they know when they do something wrong. The conscience is in full effect in the Gentiles. Even the work of the law is at work. When you read the minor prophets, especially when you read the big prophets, Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, you'll find that God holds the Gentiles and the, and the, uh, the pagan nations, he holds them accountable to the law. How can he do that with any justification? Because they know what the law says. It's written on their conscience and in their hearts. The conscience of the Gentiles, the conscience of everyone, functions to distinguish between right and wrong. It also serves to accuse or excuse thoughts and deeds by an internal ethical criteria. Go to every culture in the world and they'll know if you hit someone on the head and they die, that's typically not a good thing. Why do they know that? Why don't the animals know that, by the way? Why don't we have an ethical code, an understanding that there is right and wrong, and the animals don't? The animals do what they do to survive. As I've said over and over, I love our dog, Daisy. I love our dog. But if it was just me and Daisy and I died and the house was locked, that dog would eat me. There is no ethical code where she would say, wow, this is my master. This would be gross. She wouldn't think that. She would survive. Animals don't know ethics, which is why it's okay to eat them, by the way. (laughs) By the way, the testimony of the conscience is not only a Gentile reality that he's talking about here in verse 14, Verse 15, rather, it's of the Jews too. It's of all humanity. Everyone has an intuitive sense of right and wrong. And I know what you're thinking. Well, what about mass murderers? What about serial killers? What about those people who don't seem to have a conscience? Oh, they had one at one time. First Timothy 4 says this, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods that God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth for everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with gratitude. The point is there are those who have an alive conscience who by continually suppressing and rejecting and suffocating the truth in Romans 1 can sear their conscience so that they stop responding to right and wrong. We have a great team of musicians up here. Those who play guitar will tell you that when you first start playing guitar, you'll play for a few minutes and your fingers ache, hurt. They can even bleed because they're sensitive to the strings. But more and more playing builds up calluses so that eventually you can't even feel the strings, only the pressure on the strings. That's what happens to a conscience. You, you keep practicing sin against your conscience. You keep pushing God away. You keep following your own lusts, your own desires, your, the deceit of your heart. And you push God, push God, suppress God, suffocate the truth. And eventually you have seared your conscience to stop responding to right and wrong. What a horrific reality. But if that's something you're afraid of, then you're not there yet. It's a good day to stop searing and to start repenting. And it starts by believing the gospel, believing the truth that God is so gracious and so merciful to need a sacrifice for our sins. 
wouldn't give us a pass. So he crucified his son as taking the punishment for me, for us. If that doesn't make you stop and say, wow, just wow, then you need to put your face back in God's word and see the wonderful reality of salvation. How do you treat your conscience? Believers have a special relationship with our conscience because it's biblically informed. It's not only the general, generic sense of right and wrong, it's biblically informed so that we see things that are wrong that no one else would see as wrong. We see attitudes that are wrong that no one else sees. We feel rightfully accused by our conscience for things that no one will ever know except us and God. How do you treat your conscience? Do you stuff it away? Do you ignore it? Do you justify it? We all justify it. We all preach to our conscience, don't we? Ah, it's not that bad. Everybody does it. Everybody feels this. Or do we see our conscience as the wonderful tool of God to open up our vision of what he sees about our hearts and to repent? Is your conscience your best friend or is it an annoyance and a nuisance? The Gentiles here will one day stand before God and he'll say, you didn't respond to your conscience and know that there's a God who gave you that conscience and follow that through finding him. Even though the text says, sometimes they do what's right. Sometimes their conscience will say, that was the right thing to do. If you help someone not get hit by a car, that's a good thing. It just won't save you. There are no exemptions from God's validating assessment. What's God's validating assessment? Very simple. You know the truth, and you do the truth. Very simple. You know the truth about God and Christ and the gospel, and you take up your cross and follow him. You live as giving everything to Christ. You die knowing it's gain. There's a third implication of God's impartiality in this text. There are no exemptions from God's impartial judgment, no exemptions from God's validating assessment, and thirdly, there are no exemptions from God's omniscient evaluation. Verse 16. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. First of all, we have to ask, what, what does Paul mean when he says, my gospel? Did he have ownership in gospel truth? Did he have a trademark on the gospel? No, 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 no. He says also in chapter 16, verse 25, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for a long time in ages past. Both, both times he talks about his gospel and secrets being revealed. What's he talking about? Well, remember the term gospel is just translated good news, my good news. First of all, I think he's saying this is what I'm teaching, which is opposed to false teachers. He'll get into that in chapters 9 to 11, people who are teaching a wrong understanding of the gospel. But he's also saying this is my gospel. I think there's a sense in which we should also all say, this is my good news. My good news is that Christ saved me. He died for me. Personalize it. 
I was talking to Lance Heeman not long ago, earlier today actually, and he was just talking about the, the glory of thinking Christ died for me. And taking out of the general salvific categories and personalizing it and saying, he died. Think about it. Think, think about it. He died, God in flesh, and can it be, died for, in place of, as a substitute, for me. Does that stop your heart and rock your world? It ought to. It ought to just make us pause and gasp and say, wow. Note again the standard of judgment here. It's the gospel. According to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men how? What's the standard? Through Christ Jesus. He doesn't say if you're good enough, if you tried hard enough. It's through Christ Jesus. Everything is based on whether or not we have believed what God has done for us in his son. Note again the connection between the good news and the person of Christ. We saw it in chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 1, verse 3. The good news concerns his son. Here, he's going to judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. What does that even mean? Well, ultimately it means whether or not we've received or rejected him, but it also means by his character, by his standard, by what he taught. Teaching them all that Christ taught them, the Great Commission. Make no mistake. This passage is specifically aimed at self-righteous Jews in Paul's day. It's in, intricately connected to his building the argument that flows from the condemnation of the Gentiles in chapter 1. However, there are some implications for our lives that jump off this page and should ride home with us in the car. Timeless truths about God and about his judgment. Can I just summarize some of those for you? First of all, the truth of God's impartiality is not simply negative. I want, to, I want to highlight this. The truth of God's impartiality is not merely or simply negative. God is impartial, not just in judgment, but he's impartial in offering salvation. Acts 10.34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. When did Peter say that? Acts chapter 10. What happens in, in the first 25 verses of Acts 10? He shows Peter that God offers salvation to the Gentiles as freely and openly as he offers it to the Jews. And Peter says, oh, now I see that God is impartial. Not just in judgment. God's impartial in offering salvation. He doesn't just offer it to elite Jews. He doesn't just offer it to good people. In fact, he offers it only to those who know they're wicked and bad. Acts 10 is amazing. I wish we could just stop there. And I really mean this. Every time I have a BLT, I thank God for Acts chapter 10. Because what he does, he drops a sheet in front of Peter. And he says, see all these unclean things? I want you to rise, kill, and eat them, including pork. Now, when I thank God when I eat a BLT, it's not just for the, well, it's partially for the bacon. I admit that. But it's also, that's a great reminder that God offers salvation. I mean, every time you eat pork, you ought to think, what a God who would not limit salvation to those who follow dietary restrictions. It's remarkable. 
A second principle that jumps off this page is God is the judge and will account for the amount and level of truth we've received. Can we just be personal and practical with each other? We have received so much truth. Those to whom much is given, what? Much is required. Do you understand how much you've been given? We were in Italy, you know, a week and a half ago in Geneva and in, in, in France, and you see that these people know almost nothing of gospel realities, almost nothing of biblical exposition, almost nothing of God's biblical truth, and yet, and how many Bibles do you have? How many opportunities do you have to read the Bible? Has anyone said you cannot, under the threat of the state, you cannot own, have, teach, or preach, or read from a Bible? I can show you some of our brothers in church history who've lived under that kind of condemnation. Do you understand, and I am trying to scare us a little bit, okay? Do you understand how blessed we are and how much we will be accountable for? Yes. When we get to heaven, we will throw all of our crowns at Christ's feet. Yes. The first will be last. The last will be first. There will be an even reckoning in that judgment. However... You want to enjoy the greatness of eternity and the glories of heaven? The best way to prepare for that then is to live like that now. I have a friend who was going to play uh, Pebble Beach, going to go play golf at Pebble Beach. He knew about six months ahead of time. He was invited. It's very hard, very expensive to get on this golf course. He knew he was going to play there. And so for that six months, he played and practiced his golf game like he never had before. And the reason is, he said, when I get to that moment of experiencing Pebble Beach Golf Course, I want to enjoy it to the fullest. And the way I enjoy that the fullest then is to practice hard and work now. That's, you know what life is for a Christian? It's practicing for heaven. It's getting ready for heaven. It's becoming more like we will be then. But here's the, the gut-wrenching reality, if I can just be brutally honest about my own life and sanctification. When I was a young believer, I, a man told me he was very, he was very benevolent. He meant everything. He meant nothing harmful when he said this, and I think he had the best of motivations when he said it. But he was immature looking back now, and he just said, you know, Ricky, the, the longer you're a Christian, the less you'll sin. He was right in the big categories, Okay? I think the big categories, but what he didn't explain to me is the longer you're a Christian, the more sin you'll see. You'll see attitudes and things. Until you die, you will see things that need to be redeemed, which makes us reach for heaven, doesn't it? Another principle. No one will ever be able to rise up against God and say in that great day, verse 12 talks about, that God has been unfair excuse me, verse 16, that God has been unfair. Why? Because he'll look at the secrets. God judges the inner secrets of our heart. It may look like he's unfair to someone externally. God is never unfair and applies the same application of justice. No one will ever say God is unfair. And another, a last one. Christians ought to imitate God in being impartial and not showing favoritism. The reason I say that is that based on this truth, James 
Chapter 2, verses 1 and following say, don't exercise your faith with a spirit of favoritism. We should be like God like that. Now, back to verse 16. On the day when. On the day when. You know what Paul is saying? Think of that day. Dwell on the judgment. When what? According to my, we put it in parentheses, according to the gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Everything, everything, everything comes down to what you have done and what you will do and what you will do today with Christ. Do you believe what we sang earlier? All I have is Christ. I hope so. God's given me such a sweet gift of being able to visit different places in the world, places in Russia, places in Africa that are so deprived and so depraved and so um, absent of any external worldly blessings that when they sing, all I have is Christ, that's what they mean. And the enemy of our soul constantly feeds feeds us with things for which we can be excited and thankful for in this world and not see the gracious reality that we will not be judged and sent to hell. Verse 16, because God is judging our secrets with the covering of Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me for a moment? We're going to sing a song just to dismiss us. And afterwards, if you are struggling with anything that we've talked about, if you want to ask any questions, the prayer room will be open. Steve and Deb Schulte will be glad to pray with you, to talk with you. This is for Jews, self-righteous Jews. And yet so much of the truth still applies to us, does it not? Father, instruct our hearts, convict our souls, sanctify our actions, make our church to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who lie to ourselves. I'm so thankful, so thankful for the encouragement of brothers, of sisters of this body that pushes one another for these realities. Make us aware of our conscience. Make our consciences informed by your word and to seek every obedient thought, action, and deed as a response to your gracious gospel, never to earn your merited favor. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.